Well, so far in this series on gospel-driven guidance, discovering God's plan for your life, uh, we've seen in the first talk, God's will for all things, and then in the second talk, uh, God's word to us. Um, we come to this in this final talk to talk three to God's work in you. Uh, and that's because at one level, it's wonderful knowing what God's sovereign will is and what his moral will is um, and how it's revealed to us in his word. But knowing God's will doesn't actually mean we'll, we'll do God's will. Um, and that's what this talk is all about. So God's work in you. Uh, hopefully, once again, you've got the handout in front of you. Um, again, detailed notes as well as some blanks to fill in and a couple of pictures there that hopefully will stick in your mind at the end of this series. Well, if you look at the handout, you'll see where I want to start is with a question. And the question is one that's really a personality test, and that is this. Uh, what are you like when it comes to instruction manuals? What are you like with instruction manuals? It seems to me there's two types of people in the world when it comes to instruction manuals. Uh, so, for example, you know, when you get a shiny new phone uh, and you bring it home from the store or it's been delivered to your front doorstep, uh, there's two types of people. The first type, there are those who open the box tenderly, carefully, uh, trying not to rip even the packaging. They carefully pull everything out with a, with a reverent kind of worshipful awe, you know, sort of like my precious. And then what they do is they pour over the instruction manual. Uh, they read it from cover to cover, even before turning it on, because they want to get it just right. And then there's the rest of us. The rest of us, we who just rip the packaging apart, toss it to one side, start pushing buttons, and quite frankly, ignore the instruction manuals because everyone knows they're for losers. There are risks with this approach, of course, uh, and that's the picture there that's on the right-hand side of the handout near the top. Um, I discovered this uh, many years ago with a set of baskets uh, that I was putting together. Um, actually, they weren't mine, they were my wife. So at the time, she was only my girlfriend, uh, Wendy, and she'd only been a girlfriend for a little while. We just started dating, she was living at home, she bought some baskets to go in her, in her bedroom, and I thought, oh, here's a great chance to prove my manliness by assembling them for her. Uh, so what I did was that I put them together, not paying any attention to the instruction manual, uh, and then discovering that having assembled them wrongly so that the baskets didn't actually slide in, you couldn't undo them. At this point, her dad is watching on, um, thinking, who is this loser of a boyfriend? So I did what any self-respecting Australian male would do. I just chucked them in the bin, drove back to the store, bought an entirely new set, and got it right this time. Well, uh, in case my illustration isn't obvious to you, the Bible is God's instruction manual for us. It's the Bible who shows us both his sovereign and moral will, that is how we are to live. But of course, even if you're willing to read it properly, knowing it isn't the same as doing it. There's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, the first is that if all the Bible is to you is a series of protocols, of rules and regulations that you follow without question, kind of like a robot, well, you'll only ever be motivated to do as it says, as long as you're convinced you'll get better outcomes than if you did something different. Of course, the difficulty is, is that in our world today, a world that consistently screams, God's way is not the best for you, inevitably, even Christians are being forced to ask, does the Bible really advocate for what is good? Most people today base decisions, make decisions based not on are they right or wrong, but how they feel about it, about comfort and personal experience and personal preference. 
This has given rise to so-called liberal Christianity, uh, which effectively says, well, God's word is only relevant as long as it's culturally appropriate. The second reason why knowing is the same as doing is that, well, if all the Bible is to you a series of protocols, of rules and regulations to follow without question, kind of like a robot, well, it robs us of any freedom to express ourselves, any opportunity to grow and develop and change. It takes away any motivation to use your mind. Instead, it just says, blindly obey, which sadly is the essence of fundamentalism and fanaticism. Now, the big problem with how-to guides when it comes to decision-making is that they will only ever prescribe the bare minimum, what you need to pass, whereas love your neighbour as yourself ought to be limitless. What we really need, ultimately, is a change of heart, more than an instruction manual. And thankfully, God has provided it. So put one on your handout, God's moral will for your life, your, and here's the blank for you to fill in, your, wait for it, your holification. Your holification. Now you're thinking, what is that word? Well, actually, you wouldn't know because I made it up. Holification, the process of being made holy. That's God's will for your life, that you be made holy. Now, technically, the word that we see translated in the New Testament into English is sanctification, but really, it just means holification, to be made holy. Now, that word holy is used throughout the Bible, but particularly in the 1 Thessalonians 4 passage that we had read to us. Uh, four times, in fact, it shows up in verses 3 through 8. There's a wide range of meaning behind the word holy in the Bible. Sometimes it means set apart. Sometimes it means special. Sometimes it means godly. But its most basic meaning is to be made more like Jesus. To be conformed to the image of Christ, as we'll see in Romans chapter 8. What is God's moral will for your life? Well, it's that you be made more holy. He wants to see your holification. Of course, the question is, how does God achieve this goal in our lives? I want to ask that question in particular from the perspective of a Christian person, because of course, trying to be holy before you became a Christian didn't particularly work. So what makes you think it will be any different now, just because you have come to believe that Jesus has died for your sins? They say that the definition of insanity is repeating the same thing, but expecting a different outcome. So, what's different now that our desire to be holy might be different from before we came to know Christ? Well, this is point two on your handout. If you are serious about change, you need an external change agent if you want to see a different result. And so point two there on your handout, God's change agent in your life, here's the blank for you to fill in, His Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit. Now you see this in the 1 Thessalonians 4 passage again, in particular in verse 8. In verse 8, the Holy Spirit is described as God's gift. God's gift to us. And that's because God's Holy Spirit is the agent of our holification. God's Holy Spirit is the reason why we act differently now that we are believers. 
And the contrast was particularly apparent in the Old Testament. Uh, God's Old Testament people, despite having God's word, could not keep it. And that's why the prophet Ezekiel looked forward to a day when God would give us a new heart and a new spirit. What Gordon Fee so elegantly calls, there on your handout, God's empowering presence. God's empowering presence. The way in which God changes us, the way in which God makes us holy, is by his empowering presence, his Holy Spirit, who is in each one of us who believe. And this is just such wonderful good news. Because, of course, if you want to change your behaviour, you have to do more than just get rid of the old. You have to do more than just put to death the old self. You have to replace it with something new. You have to put on something that is alive in Christ. There's a reference there on your handout to Thomas Chalmers. Uh, Thomas Chalmers was one of the great 18th century Puritans, uh, 19th century Puritans. Uh, he wrote a, an outstanding little article called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And what he argued was that it's not enough to simply want to put away an ungodly desire. You have to replace it with a greater and stronger desire for something godly. The new affection is what drives out the old. I'll give you an illustration to make the point. Uh, you'll see a picture there uh, on your handout. It's a picture of the startup screen for a Macintosh, although it's a slightly unusual one. If you've got a Mac, you've probably never seen it before. Uh, it's actually a screenshot from a guy who I work with. Um, he is, well, to put it finally, he is a geek. He's a geek in every sense of the word. He's one of those geeks who think that Apple Corporation is evil in every way. And so, well, he's not even into Windows because that's equally evil. That's from, you know, Microsoft. He's a hardcore Linux guy. And so a couple of years ago, he was faced with a dilemma because he saw these new Apple laptops, which was just so pretty and he wanted one. But of course, in acquiring one, he'd then be stuck with using the evil Macintosh operating system. So, of course, what did he do? He went and installed a new operating system. So now his laptop looks like a shiny, pretty Mac, but it behaves very differently. Something has changed on the inside. And that's the thing that enables it to operate in a new fashion. This is God's Holy Spirit. He has been installed, downloaded, you might say, into every believer. And he is the one who is the agent of our holification. Well, what is the purpose of all of this? Point three at the bottom of your handout, being conformed to the image of Christ. Remember how I said that uh, the most basic definition of to be made holy is to be set apart or to be special. Well, actually, more than anything, the word holy in the New Testament means to be made more like Christ, to be conformed to his image, to use the words of Romans chapter 8. And I printed verse 29, therefore, in your handout. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And so on the right hand side of your handout, then you'll see there's a couple of questions that I want to ask. Firstly, what is God doing in your life? And then secondly, in whom is God working? 
Well, first of them, what is God doing in your life? If God has given you the Holy Spirit to conform you to the image of Christ, it means that God's primary work is in you. It is not external to you. God's primary work is in you. It is not external to you. That is, what God is primarily doing is changing your character and conviction before he ever changes your circumstances. I'll say it again. God is changing your character and convictions before he ever changes your circumstances. Perhaps the most famous passage in the New Testament that describes the work of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 6, well, each of those things are about the character that is brought about in believers. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What does that mean? Well, two things. Firstly, it means that God, as he makes us more holy, wants us to make choices that will help us become more like Christ. I'll say it again. God, as he makes us more holy, wants us to make choices that will make us more like Christ. Have a look how Kevin DeYoung puts it in his uh, short and very helpful little book called Just Do Something. Kevin DeYoung. Specific step-by-step instruction is not usually how God operates. His way is to show us his holiness, declare us holy in Christ, then exhort us to grow in holiness in daily life. That's God's will of desire for you. He wants you to buy a house that will make you holy. If you marry, he wants you to get married so you can be holy. He wants you to get a job that will help you grow in holiness. Now, that's a pretty amazing thought, isn't it? That what God wants is for every decision you make, about every choice that confronts you, to be one that helps you to grow to be more holy, to be more and more like Christ. Now, you might say, well, look, that's all nice and well to talk about buying a house or a marriage or choosing a marriage partner or uh, um, picking a job that helps you grow to be holy. Well, how does that actually happen? Well, sometimes it's obvious by what it's not. So, for example, let's talk about jobs or vocation. Some jobs make it harder for you to grow in holiness. Let me be really facetious. Don't be a hitman if you want to grow in holiness. But nevertheless, can you see that this has a profoundly different way of choosing how you might spend your life? You see, if this is your goal, you won't be asking, how can I be the best lawyer, teacher, doctor, nurse, accountant for Jesus? What you'll be asking is, how does my job help me be more conformed to the image of Christ or not? I'll give a personal example here. Uh, after I finished university and started working, I joined a very high-powered strategic management consulting firm. Uh, it was a great job in many ways with lots of brilliant opportunities, uh, although the toll was quite strong. It was, it was quite demanding. When I eventually finished my time with that uh, company, I looked back over my timesheets and I discovered that I'd averaged 75 hours a week at work. I'd spent three nights a week away from home for nearly two years. And this won't surprise you in the slightest. I discovered that I'd become a far more impatient person than before I began. Far more impatient, constantly annoyed at people for wasting my time since I had so little of it to spare. It did make me think of the fourth fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 6.
So, God wants us to make choices which help us to become more like Christ. Well, how does that actually happen? Well, that's the million-dollar question. But you have to start with intention and desire in the first place. And so, the second comment that I want to make here is that before you ask God to change your circumstances, ask how he might be changing your character and your convictions to make you more like Jesus. Ask first, what fruit of the Spirit might God be bringing forth in me in these circumstances before you plead with God to change your situation? Again, let me give you an illustration. Let's imagine that you've come to church one Sunday and uh, afterwards you walk out to the car park and you discover that your car has been stolen. I'm sorry, I don't mean to make anyone nervous at this point. But I wonder if in that moment, if you had the, I guess, the patience to do so, what would you stop and pray at the moment you saw your car was gone? Would you pray for God to change your circumstances? Oh, dear Lord, bring my car back to me unscathed. Now, oh, sure, why not? I mean, that's a perfectly reasonable prayer to pray. But will you first ask God to change your character? Maybe you know you have a struggle with materialism, with loving your possessions an inordinate amount. Maybe you realize that actually one of the ways in which God might lessen your attachment to your possessions is to take them away. Uh, there was a time in the past where um, I was uh, coming up from Adelaide to Sydney and uh, I wanted to borrow a car from uh, a relative of mine, from my aunt. So I um, emailed her and yeah, she's a very generous woman. So I figured I'd ask her. I needed a car to get around a bit. So I said, you know, could I be able to borrow your car just for a few days? Um, interestingly, she didn't get back to me for quite a while, which is most unlike my aunt. When she did, she wrote me a fairly sheepish email, actually. I won't read it out, but the gist of it was this. Uh, she said, when I got your request, my initial thought was, no, I'm not going to lend you my car. It's brand new. I just bought it. But she went on to say, while she was thinking about this and before she could actually reply to my email, I, I suspect knowing that it wasn't a very good reason not to lend it to her nephew, <laughs> she happened to damage the car herself at the shops. Which, being the godly woman that she is, she concluded it was a nudge from God to stop being so precious about her possessions. I want to challenge you. If you are serious about wanting to be more and more like Jesus, if you're serious about wanting to be conformed to the image of Christ, are you prepared to pray real character-changing prayers, not just ones to do with your circumstances? So, for example... I often encourage the students that I work with um, who say to me things like, I'm praying about my giving, praying about my ministry support. I often say to them, look, that's a good prayer to pray, but it feels a bit vague to me. Why don't you pray instead, God, help me to be more generous. Or best of all, why don't you pray, God, help me to be more generous this year than last year. Because that's really a prayer that goes to your character. And that's one that, God willing, you'll see change in. Well, the other question that I want to ask then, if, 
God's goal through his Holy Spirit, his change agent, is to conform us to the image of Christ. Again, on your handout, halfway down, then, is in whom is God at work? In whom is God working? Uh, the reason why I ask this question is because one of the difficulties of being a new creation, uh, that is someone who is outwardly wasting away, even though inwardly we're being renewed day by day in the image of Christ, one of the difficulties of being a new creation is that it's hard to see. And not only in others, but to see it in ourselves. And that means that what we actually need, I think, is others who will help us in this process of becoming more and more like Christ. See, actually, when Romans 8.29 says, uh, Christ is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, it's not saying that I am to become more like Jesus. It's saying we are to become more like Christ. And one of the reasons for that is because change in our character or conviction mostly goes to our motives, to why we make particular decisions. And yet, of course, when it comes to motive, we have to be realistic. All of us have incredible capacity for self-deception. There's a quote there attributed to the great English reformer Thomas Cramner, printed on your handout. What the heart loves, the will does, and the mind justifies. What the heart loves, the will does, and the mind justifies. This is a way of describing our capacity for self-deception. And I'll give you an, an illustration just to make the point of this. Uh, tell me if this rings true. Chocolate. Chocolate is good. I'm going to eat that piece of chocolate. I deserve the chocolate. I can work off the chocolate at the gym next week. It would be rude of me to refuse God's good gift of chocolate in my life. All of us have an amazing capacity for self-deception. So, in the process of becoming more and more like Jesus, God in his kindness uses others to help us work out our own biases, to see our own blind spots that sometimes even we don't notice. I guess what I'm saying is that if you're serious about wanting to be more and more like Christ, then you'll even ask God to expose those weaknesses, and not just to yourself, but to others. Others, not so that they might look on you with scorn, but that they might in love help you and encourage you to be more and more like Jesus. It seems to me that in any church, unless it happens to be a very, very small church, the key way in which that happens is through home groups and small groups. Because quite frankly, an hour and a half on a Sunday morning with lots and lots of people is almost impossible to be able to work out how you might encourage others. But it's also impossible for others to know you well enough to be able to see and gently remind you of those ways in which we practice self-deceit. Please do make sure you're part of that kind of community uh, because that's one of God's gifts to enable us to become more and more like Jesus. Well, third and final question there. How exactly does God work for the good of those who love him? I come back to Romans 8 one last time. Romans 8 verse 28. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Now, I have um, consistently talked about this series about the importance of Scripture, of reading it, even of memorizing it. Uh, and so it's one, for that reason, I'm a real advocate or proponent of memory verses. Sadly, it seems to me that many Christians have mismemorized Romans 8.28. See, many Christians think that it says, 
in all good things, God works for the good of those who love him. But it doesn't. Look again at it closely. It says, all things, whether wonderfully good or horribly bad even, still God works those things for the good of those who love him, that they might be more and more conformed to the image of Christ. Kevin DeYoung, one last time, put it on your hand out there. If God opens the door for you to do something you know is good or necessary, be thankful for the opportunity. But other than that, don't assume that the relative ease or difficulty of a new situation is God's way of telling you to do one thing or the other. Remember, God's will for your life is your sanctification. And God tends to use discomfort and trials more than comfort and ease to make us holy. Isn't that insightful? God tends to use discomfort and trials more than comfort and ease to make us holy. Now, I'm not saying, therefore, that we ought petition God to increase our suffering. Now, if, it does, if you do experience suffering and hardship, by all means, pray to our Heavenly Father who loves us that he might alleviate it. But actually, the main prayer of a Christian who wants to be more like Jesus is... Even in suffering, God, remind me how you are using this hardship to make me more like Christ. I think you'll find that if you ask any mature Christian, by which I mean a Christian, a person who's been a Christian for 50, 60, 70 years, if you ask any mature Christian, they'll tell you that their faith has grown most and their work walk with the Lord most real and intimate in times of adversity, not prosperity. Because it's in those times that we recognise our deep and ongoing need for his grace. What do you think is the suffering that Paul is referring to in Romans 8? So in Romans 8 he talks about, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. What do you think that suffering is? Well, in many ways, I think it's the sheer agony of not yet being conformed to the image of Christ. It's the utter pain and misery of wanting not just to know God's moral will, but to do it perfectly every single day of our lives with every single decision we make, and yet so often falling short. I think it's the agony of, in fact, even at times, not wanting to do God's will. I think it's the anguish of living in a world which is broken by sin and where Jesus is not yet exalted and worshipped and glorified forever and ever as he will be. And so here's where I finish this series at point four, by asking us to look forward to the day when God's work is complete. Throughout this series, I've been trying to draw the distinction between guidance and gospel-driven guidance. So one last time, guidance asks questions like, what choice might improve my circumstances? Whereas gospel-driven guidance asks, how is God conforming me to the image of Christ even in this situation? Here's the thing. God will complete his work. I know it doesn't feel like it at the moment, 
But what God has started, he will bring to completion. And that means that in the meantime, you and I, we are works in progress. We are beta versions, if that means anything to anyone there still. None of us are finished. We all know that. If you need reminding, come and I'll point it out to you sometime. But one day, we will not be so anymore. We will be fully like Christ. The final image that I'd like to leave as this series concludes is the one that's at the bottom right-hand corner there. It's a picture of Rodin's sculpture, The Thinker, perhaps his most famous of all. No doubt you recognise it. I find myself imagining what it would have been like if you had been there when Rodin was creating this sculpture. I dreamed a little bit about what it would have been to be there in the workshop as this thing takes place, uh, making sense really to no one else except for him. As he chips away, as he does his work, one day he downs tools and says, I'm done. There is nothing left to do. One day, the day is coming when God will down tools and he sees you and he sees me and he sees all who are in Christ. And what he sees is something that is worthy of all praise. On that day, not only will we be without sin, we will not even be able to sin. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine how wonderful it will be and so long for that glorious day, the first in all eternity, when we sing his never-ending praise? Let me pray to finish. Heavenly Father, finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee, Change from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love and praise. Amen.